Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep on top of the most important news from China in just a few minutes a day, with a terrific email newsletter curated in season by Chef Jeremy Goldcorn, plus a handy smartphone app, and of course our website at SupChina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. Make sure you also check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, which we produce in cooperation with Caixin. China's authority for business and financial news. It's a weekly half-hour show that comes out on Mondays in the U.S. and offers a roundup of top business stories, interviews with some of the editors and reporters at Caixin, and gives a selection of full stories read in the dulcet voice of Miss Ada Shen and the um, decidedly undulcet tones of me. So I am Kaiser Guo, and I am at my mom's house in Xisi on Mutton Alley, Yangrou Hutong in western Beijing. I am joined from Nashville, Tennessee by Jeremy Goldhorn, former frontman for the hardcore outfit Zinyumi and the Hostile Foreign Forces, once the staple of Beijing's <laughs> underground rock scene. Jeremy, how are you, man? Hey, Kaiser. I am doing very well. I'm not actually in Nashville. I am in the lovely city of Memphis, musical hometown of Elvis Presley. My wife is playing a concert at a huge new art center here in uh, Memphis. It's, it reminds me a bit of China. They've converted a massive Sears Roebuck warehouse. at basically the Amazon.com of its day where people would order mail order goods. And uh, this was one of the warehouses where they'd be posted out from. Um, and they've turned it into an art center and a school and stuff. But it's just open, so it's completely empty. So it reminds me a lot of China. Well, cool. Uh, today, I'm going to jump right in here. We are talking about careers in China journalism with two people for whom uh, life as foreign correspondents in Beijing has been both professionally and, I dare say, personally rewarding. Not only are they highly regarded reporters, they're also married to one another. Yes, gentle listeners, theirs is a tale of love in the newsroom. Uh, so <laughs> Julian Wong. <laughs> Julian Wong is Greater China News Director for the Associated Press and spent some time at the Wall Street Journal covering the China tech scene and doing, I must say, a bang-up, very excellent job of it. Uh, she joins us for the first Thank time. You. Julian, welcome at long last to Seneca. Thank you, Kaiser. It's great to be here. Oh, I guess I, I have to really quickly say that AP wants to be sure that uh, we, we, we make clear that the views expressed by Julian are her own, not those of the Associated Press. We now return to our regularly scheduled podcast. <laughs> But are the views of Josh Chin representative of the Wall Street Journal? Well, hell yeah. <laughs> uh, no comment. Jillian's less successful husband is Josh Chin, who has been a guest on Seneca many, many <laughs> times. Uh, I think all in our previous much woolier pop-up Chinese studio days. Josh is an editor and writer with the Wall Street Journal in Beijing, and we are delighted to have him back on the show. Say hello to everyone, Josh. Delighted to be here, Jeremy. So, Josh, Julian, uh, maybe we can start by talking about the point at which each of you made the fatal mistake of, uh, I'm, uh, I'm sorry, made you, you realized that you wanted to pursue a, a career in journalism. Uh, was this something that you had aspired to do all along? Uh, let's hear from each of you, starting, of course, with Julian, uh, about the paths that you took to where you are today. 
Thank you, Kaiser. Yeah, I think I, I I think it's pretty safe to say that I had wanted to be a journalist for you know since, since I was a teenager. Oh, teenager. Wow. Yeah, basically when I was in high school and I was studying in Singapore, which is where I'm from, for the equivalent of college entrance exams, and I uh, was riveted by uh, the news of um, a U.S. embassy bombing in Kenya. I think I think it was that. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I, yeah, and I was just I was like, oh, you know, this looks like an interesting job. And I turned to my father uh, at the time. You know, it was it was sort of uh, we would all just kind of hang out in the living room watching TV while studying. And I just turned to my dad and I said, I think I want to do this for a living. Oh, wow. And he so was you like, do have oh, like a please, moment. God, no. <laughs> and so then I started. Well, he thought you meant bomb embassies. For a <laughs> <laughs> or be in dangerous situations, uh, potentially dangerous situations where things explode and, you know, yeah, people uh, get, get injured. So it was, yeah, it was sort of, I, I did have a kind of a, a, a moment where I just thought, oh, you know, this is an interesting job. And, and then I started, you know, did a journalism degree uh-huh. in Singapore uh, and uh, did multiple internships at the local newspaper and, and also other newspapers in Singapore and and landed a, an AP internship as part of the, the curriculum, which started my AP career in Singapore. Sorry, right. I hit the microphone. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, sure okay. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think I always had a hunger, uh, you know, to try to figure out what's happening and, and a sort of nosiness that irritated my mother, but really, you know, came in handy for this job. It's funny. It's my mother's nosiness that irritates me. Nothing. <laughs> she should have been the journalist. Josh, what about you? Um, I'm actually the exact opposite. I got into journalism completely by accident after... Um, being fired as a substitute teacher in my hometown high school uh, or hometown school district after college. Uh, so, so I did not know this part of your, your yeah, story. Okay. Yeah, my my, uh, you my ask glorious. Him why he was fired. Yeah. So yeah, why were you fired? Well, so I was so after college, like like many, um, I went to a liberal arts school. So like many liberal arts, maybe most liberal arts grads, I had no idea what to do with myself, and I didn't have a. Uh, a degree that anyone want actually was useful uh, economically. So I went home and uh, got a job one of the only jobs I could get, which was substitute teaching in my hometown school district. And one day I was faced with uh, a group of seventh grade math students who, uh, who, and I made the, the fatal mistake of trying to be the cool substitute teacher uh, right. and telling them, you know, that once they got their, their assignments done, they could, they could just sit quietly and talk with their friends and I wouldn't make them do anything else. And of course that went horribly wrong to the point where I, Lost my temper slightly and uh, maybe dropped a couple f bombs on them, Oops. and uh, and that was uh, that was that. <laughs> so uh, so then I then I very shortly after that, uh, my roommate and best friend at the time was working at the local newspaper and said they had an opening and he's like, it's a place where you can drop as many f bombs as you want, and not get fired. And I said, that sounds great. <laughs> so um, so it was your 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 desire to to basically to curse and to swear and to- basically yeah mm-hmm. yeah. So uh, and that that's continued to hold hold true. So uh, <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Uh, yeah.
So, Josh, uh, you and I first met way back in 2007 at the Chinese Bloggers Conference uh, right. in Hangzhou. Wow. Uh, that was perhaps the the most uh, the peak of of the Chinese blogger Bloggers Conference. By 2009, it was dead, and you know Weibo and other social media had taken over. But anyway, I seem to remember from those days that your entry into journalism in China was a little unconventional. You weren't posted uh, with a uh, newspaper or news organization's bureau, were you? You. Can you tell us a little bit about that? No, no. Actually, well, in fact, it goes back further than that because I was um, so shortly after I, I did a, basically a year at my hometown newspaper and then I knew I wanted to come back to China because I'd studied China and spent very many, many painful years studying Chinese. Uh, so I ended up getting a job at, a, uh, at China Daily <laughs> as, a, uh, as a copy editor. And did that for a year. Uh, and then after that, I went freelance. And maybe it was the stain of the China Daily on my resume, but I found it hard to sort of catch on with a bureau here. So I, yeah, I just kind of worked freelance. And, you know, in, in 2007, I was, uh, yeah, I was making, I was making the rounds of the blogger conferences. When, so, when were you, you, you had been, you didn't stint at the Asia Society. When was that? Right. That was also, that was in 2007. Okay. Okay. And I think the, we first met in 2007 or eight when you interviewed me for some documentary that you were doing, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the China boom project. Right. 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 Yeah. right, right. I wonder yeah. what came of that. I, I, uh, it's still, it's, it's on there. It's okay. still online. I'll, I'll yeah. have to yeah. check it out sometime. So, uh, Jillian and Josh, were there other careers that the two of you seriously considered, or were the enormous sums of money uh, you make in journalism just uh, <laughs> too difficult to resist? Well, Jillian's already been pretty clear. She was, you know, already. Yeah, although before that, um, I toyed with the idea of theater because I had studied theater in oh, high wow. school. But that was clearly going to be a difficult one to support myself with. And I really wanted to move out of my parents' house as much as I loved them. It was kind of like I was very determined to have some level of financial independence. <laughs> and so relatively speaking, journalism was the... Yeah. How about you, Josh? Yeah, so I was. Uh, I did actually think of uh, another career when I was in college. I was a, a comparative religion major and thought about. In fact, most of most of the time, I imagined, assumed that I was going to go into academia and be professorial, in some way. Uh, and then, when I the, the sort of the moment it switched for me was during a semester abroad in China. I was doing research on on religion here for a thesis. So I was sort of you know, realized that, you know, Buddhists in China were not these incredibly enlightened uh, oh, really? <laughs> people who I who had been led to believe they were. In fact, most of them were there burning incense for luck and gambling or to get their kids and yeah. uh, to have their kids do well in the Gaokao. And, and uh, I kind of fell out of out of love with academia. It's funny point. because, I mean, I, I would have thought the opposite. Every time I see a guy with like those big outsized Buddhist beads on, <laughs> I, I think that's a sign I can trust <laughs> right, <him>. Exactly. He's <laughs> by far the most trustworthy guy you're going to meet on the street. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so is there an academic, speaking of academics, is there an academic course of study uh, that you think is best to prepare you for a career as a journalist in China? I mean, if you had to recommend to an undergraduate um, what he or she ought to major in um, and then say, given that choice that I think many of us have faced between uh, a master's in Chinese or in East Asian studies on the one hand or J school on the other. I mean, you both went to, to, you both studied journalism formally. Josh, you kind of came to it later, but you, you, mm -hmm. uh, Jill, you had actually done it as an undergraduate. Is that right? Yes. And then you went to Mizzou for, on an exchange too, right? To yes. the Columbia business, yeah. uh, J Columbia school, which Missouri. is like quite, quite famous, right? Mm -hmm. 
What about you? So what would you recommend? Because I think you, know, you hear a lot about how J school doesn't really do anything for you and really you should have majored in econ and studied a little history and language. Yeah, I personally, I, th- I think a lot of the skills you pick up in journalism, you learn on the job, uh-huh. how to ask people questions, how to assess the information you're given, um, how to talk to people in different types of situations and, you know, sort of change your style and your approach accordingly. And like a lot of it is just kind of a sixth sense and, and also how to hold the authorities accountable for what they give you. And you kind of learn those things on the job more than than you can really be taught, uh, you know, in a, a very theoretical uh, curriculum. I think it's important to understand. And what I, I took away from J school was just the understanding that there are different models of the media and how they operate in society. And it's useful, especially in China, to kind of uh, take a step back and and kind of see the functions of the state media apparatus uh, in the broader picture. So that's useful. And and also, I think another thing that was helpful was any sort of opportunities for practical experiences. As uh, somebody who now looks at resumes, when I see that somebody has had experience uh, at a newspaper or some other type of uh, news outlet before they've graduated, I, I do I do value that. And yeah. sometimes J schools can help find those opportunities. So so th- those are the pros and cons that I would weigh. But I think any, you know, expertise or background in like China studies or, you know, contemporary Chinese politics, like all of that is very useful. And what about Chinese language? Uh, perhaps Josh can answer this. Um, there have been uh, some journalists who've uh, uh, spent time in China without acquiring any real knowledge of the language or fluency or ability to understand and have still done a pretty good job if you base that on their reputations and uh, the quality of the journalism they put out. Um, how important is it uh, to have a good Chinese as a journalist in China? <laughs> well, I don't... I don't... I never feel like I have a good command of Chinese. Well, none um, of us ever feel like it. Right, right, right. Uh, I mean, I think... I mean, my- well, I think you start to have a good command of Chinese about the point where you realize you don't have a good Anyway, let's cast aside the modesty, Josh. I know you speak Chinese. <laughs> right, right. So is it important in your job? Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, obviously, I think it's, it's hugely important. Um, I, I, too, am mystified by the, the few examples of people out there over time who've managed to produce really good work on China without... Speaking the language, I know some of them have sort of armies of assistants, uh, which is a, which is a luxury that not not uh, many others have. So th- that might be part of the explanation. But but no, I think it's I think it's absolutely crucial. And I think you know, you know, to to truly sort of understand a culture, to truly understand a country, I think you have to know the language, right? And and so so f- beyond you know the practical ability to simply talk to people and to to read and uh, and and write in Chinese and the advantages those give you as a journalist, I think just sort of grasping the culture and, and, and sort of a little bit of the way people think here is a, is a huge benefit. Jill, these days with so many good Chinese speakers out there, I mean, would you even consider a resume from somebody looking for a, a job as a, a, a wire reporter at AP if the person didn't have some Chinese language skill? Um, that's a tough question. So you would consider... I mean, I, I try to keep an open mind, right. you know, like I, I really believe that uh, I, I try to identify an initiative, a hunger, a curiosity or a particular skill set that we don't have in the, the you know, in the existing right. operation. And if that person demonstrates a willingness to 
find a way to overcome that lack of the language ability, but there's a way to pair that person up with somebody who, you know, is a really good assistant and a really good, you know, sort of person who can work with someone who doesn't understand the language. I think that's still, you know. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and there are so many great reporters in China who don't have uh, the language ability. Yeah, I don't know that many, but there are some. Yeah, so um, for, for, for you guys, is it more journalism as a profession or China as an object of curiosity that really has its hooks in you? I mean, Josh, I mean, my, my, my sense is maybe it's a different answer for each of you, right? I mean... Um, that is a good question. I mean, definitely got into journalism independently of China. Um, but like I said earlier, accidentally, uh, and then, and, but in the end, journalism became a really good way for me to get back to China. That had always been my intention coming out of college was to find a way to work here. Okay. Uh, because it was just a fascinating place. It was like the late nineties, uh, were kind of, you could sort of sense the momentum gathering at the time. Uh, so so yeah, I think it probably started with China. Um, it's at this point I've been doing both for so long; it's kind of hard it's to hard separate, to separate them. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly, I can imagine myself, and I do imagine myself doing journalism elsewhere. But, but the way the the market is these days, people still read about China; they don't necessarily read too much about other countries. So, <laughs> Jill, what about you? I would say journalism uh-huh. first, and China kind of grabbed me unexpectedly i i i mean i always known uh you know i i because i started reporting in singapore um for me journalism was really sort of i know it sounds preachy but it was really sort of a way to get at the truth uh especially in a place where um the public discourse can be very easily especially in the pre-social media era which is when i started my career uh quite easily manipulated and there was no room for other voices and so i was quite driven by by you know a certain sense of the ideal that people need to know what's happening in their own country and no shame in that at all the singapore chinese uh Comparison is always int- interesting, so I'd like to ask you specifically about that because, you know, in some ways it seems that the Chinese Communist Party's biggest dream now is to turn the country into a huge version of Singapore. And, well, that um, may not be possible, uh, but certainly in terms of media control, sometimes China does seem to resemble uh, Singapore. Singapore, uh, in some ways, long ago perfected a, a method of me- media control that can resemble today's China. You know, on the surface, it can seem very, very free, but it's not. What are the differences between the way it works in Singapore, you know, uh, reporting on the Singaporean government and the way it works in China, reporting on the Chinese government? Um, well, I suppose the main difference is that the the Singapore government, and I... I think it's fair to say this as a fact rather than uh, an opinion. Uh, the Singapore government has a sophisticated mechanism of, you know, using the threat of legal action to, you know, sort of um, cow <laughs> <laughs> uh, to, to sort of yeah. I mean, uh, you know, uh, the former uh, founding father of Singapore, uh, you know, he himself, I believe, had said that. The way to get at uh, a media outlet is not to necessarily sue a journalist, but to sue the news organization and hit their pocketbooks, uh, because that would then shape the agenda. And I think that's a sort of unique setup that that works in in a 
particular political situation. And it's not quite the same here. And actually, I think uh, in China, the outreach uh, to the... I mean, well, uh, it, it's it's less. It, it takes less of it that legal route. It's more sort of more straight up coercion, <laughs> <laughs> or, or so more lock you up and beat you up than than sue you. Right. 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 So, in, in terms of reporting, I have to imagine that China is is pretty much sui generis. I mean, there's probably no other country that combines the the daunting size and the the sheer and kind of manifestly obvious significance of China but also like the, the 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 torrent of things that are just crying out to be covered i mean just just a, a, a overwhelming number of things but also you know the opacity you know the famous difficulty of access and the restrictions and all the hassles that you guys go through um is this a place where a, an aspiring journalist has to hone a whole other set of skills i mean is this is a different place to cover right yeah, I think, well, I think so. I mean, I have to say my basis for comparison is a little bit weak because I've only really worked in the U.S. as a journalist right, for, a, you, you for a couple of years. You can look enviously but. at how easy it is to cover, say, Germany or to... Say, right, yeah. right. I mean, I will say my, yeah, my experiences outside of China, I mean, a couple of years in the U.S. and a couple, you know, one time in India and a few other countries have been, I mean, it is sort of eye-opening for me how, how easy it is to get government officials to talk to you and to get mm. government departments to give you official me, statistics. They don't make you send a fax. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly, exactly. Right. I, I honed my fax skills for all these years, and I'm afraid if I go back to the U.S., they'll be completely useless. Um, so, I, yeah, I think that that's. I think that is a huge adjustment. I mean, I think you know, I, I'm just talking to people who are used to reporting in the U.S. and then come to China. You know, they're just sort of mystified. You know, what do you mean I can't get publicly available documents? I mean, they're they're supposed to be publicly available, right? Like, why can't I get those? Um, and so if, you know, if that's the basis of your reporting, which in the U S a lot of it is, um, you know, then you do have to kind of come up with this whole new approach to, to getting information and you have to, this is where language skills do, do come in, right? Absolutely. Cause a lot of it is, uh, people based, um, you do, you have to sort of spend a little bit more time developing sources and then, and triangulating information to try to, you know, paint a picture using the, the information you can find to sort of, uh, just gesture at what's going on. Josh, what about this? If you um, if you go to Africa, many parts of Africa, you know, in the middle of the Congo, in Namibia, if you whip out a camera, the bigger the better, the more people come. You whip out a huge camera, you often find, you know, many, many people would like right. to talk to the camera. People like to be interviewed. China is completely different. I mean, you whip out a camera, uh, you know, ch- whether you're Chinese or, or, or foreign, you know, a big uh, uh, video camera that looks like a TV camera, people tend to shy away from it. They don't want to to be filmed. And it's worse if you're, you know, obviously foreign, if you're white or black or, or brown or some non-Chinese uh, skin shade. You're, you're kind of a mixie, right? So, but you could really <laughs> pass for Chinese, I am a mixie, yes. Is, that's the term of art. So I have two questions for you. And sorry if this is um, not polite or right. politically incorrect, but I, I don't know how else to ask it. Aside from, uh, you know, the government, government interference, uh, and you've done quite a lot of video work in China where, you know, the camera makes it more obvious. Right. How, how do you find the people's reaction to you um, as a journalist? And the second question is, and Gillian, you weigh in on this too, please. But as somebody who could sometimes pass for Chinese and sometimes as a foreigner, what's the difference in the reception that you get depending on what people 
think your identity is. Right, right. Well, I think that, I mean, that's, you, I mean, basically you've described the difference. I mean, there are, in the US as well, people love, especially if you have a camera, people like, well, your news, like, what are you, what are you, like, what are you asking? Like, I, I have an opinion. Um, <laughs> in China, not so much. I mean, no one wants that there's sort of zero perceived benefit from speaking to the media, especially foreign media. So it just, I mean, it takes a lot of convincing. Uh, frankly, um, and you just have to spend a lot more time sort of explaining to people what you're doing and why you're doing it and why it's good for them or, or, you know, or trying to, or, or trying to, uh, allay their fears. I mean, I will say increasingly these days, if you do pull out a camera, you do draw quite a large crowd of security officials. <laughs> um, so sometimes you don't even get there. Uh, so those herd and the hutongs were harder to get than, than, than we, we assume, huh? Yeah, no, those, I mean, those, yeah, we did. Yeah. So the herd and the hutong is this, this, uh, yeah, sort of man on the street, this box pop thing that we did on our those website for the though. journal. I yeah. yeah. I mean, I thought they were, I thought they were really fascinating, but they took a, they took a huge amount of, of work, especially because we wanted to get people's faces on there. Um, but on the on the issue of being Chinese or, or not Chinese, I mean, I, I frankly uh, had a huge advantage on this in, in a lot of respects because I could sort of be Chinese when it suited me and not be Chinese when it didn't. So it's like know. a Chinese guy with an extraordinarily high nose bridge. Right? <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. Well, I mean, it's, 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 there's a particular thing about Chinese attitudes towards race where, you know, I could say, Oh, I'm I'm half Chinese, and and just tell the story of my family going over, and because it was my father's side of the family, they would a lot of a, a huge surprising number of people be like, oh well, then you're Chinese. Uh, if your father's Chinese, <laughs> you're Chinese. You're petulant. one of us. Um, so that was, I mean, I, and I'm not, a, I'm slightly ashamed to admit that I definitely did use that on occasion. Yeah. Um, and but yeah, and then there were times when it's it's good to play the dumb foreigner and be like, well, I don't, I don't understand what's going on here. I'm, I'm a white guy, so. So, uh, Jill, I was talking to Amy Chin last night from the New York Times, and she was suggesting that being ethnically Chinese actually has a big upside. Um, that not only the sources and interview subjects tend to be less, you know, less defensive and more candid about you know China's faults. The whole, you know, Joshua Buraiyang, but you know, the, if you're one of them, they'll 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 tell you about you know everything. But also, uh, officialdom extends a certain trust to you. Like, hey, you know, you understand this. You're Chinese. They'll sort of try to play to your, you know your genetically in, inborn empathy. So what are some of the, 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 the pros and cons of it? I mean, cons, those are obvious too, because right. Uh, they, if you feel like they hold you to a different standard, maybe. Well, I would say um, it really depends on the type of reporting situation you're in. And uh, where I find it is a con tends to be in mass incident reporting. So, you know, any type of protests or, uh, you know, gathering of large groups of people. And actually, this also, you know, ties into the earlier question about the holding of a camera in front of a group. Sometimes in China, when they're on the streets, and I covered uh, a, a protest like this, you know, um, when there's so many, you know, people on the streets, and they're really fired up, and they see a camera being held by you, they're going to converge on the camera. And then, and then you sort of run the risk of like, it becoming, you know, a sort of uh, more, you know, an amplifier. Right. Yeah, a slightly more antagonistic uh, setup, and then you know, sort of that's where you kind of have to withdraw a little, or you feel like you should withdraw a little, so it doesn't feel like they're just, you know, following you around to 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 make you the center of this protest. But uh, in in such situations, uh, as an uh, ethnically Chinese person trying to sort of convey that I'm with the foreign media is sometimes difficult right, because they right. would you know 
you know, they would want you to see, see my face. ID. Right. But as soon as my, uh, you know, colleague, uh, you know, who's who's not uh, ethnically Chinese comes rocking up, you know, they they immediately talk to him. And, and so it's sort of a, a bit of a toss up. It's also a situation I face a lot in Xinjiang, uh, where, you know, most people would look at me and think I'm I'm Han Chinese because I am ethnically Chinese, and and that becomes an immediate sort of, you know, um, barrier to to trying to get somebody to just. I should probably call people's attention to that excellent reporting that you did from Xinjiang. Oh, thanks. What year was that? Now that would have been in two thousand nine. Twenty uh, in two thousand and nine. Yeah, I did. Uh, I, I did. I did. Uh, I spent a few weeks in Xinjiang in Urumqi. But there was another long form AP piece that you did, and that was a few years later. Uh, yes, I. Uh in 2009, I visited a street where people talked about the violence and, and there was a mix of different voices uh, from different ethnic groups. Uh, and then uh, and then maybe a few years later, I was writing about ethnic policy and, and how, you know, um, how it was really, uh, you know, further dividing the Han Chinese uh, from from the Uyghurs uh, and, and the various ways in which, uh, you know, um, uh, both sides were were having you know difficulty finding some common ground. Right. So uh, that was that was basically. Oh, send me a link. I'll make sure that we put a, a link. Oh, thanks. That, that was a great story. Let's talk about social media then, especially Twitter and how it has changed the job of a journalist. I know that many many media organizations really want journalists to get out there on Twitter and get active and build personal brands or whatever the current word for it is. How do you two feel about that? Jill, are you are you big on Twitter? I have some number of followers. Yeah, I mean, I don't see it on there all that often. I mean, I guess I'd see Josh a little more on Twitter. I'm not all that much. So. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I mean, the, the Twitter's a bit of a double-edged sword. It's, I mean, it's... Um, I mean, I found it really useful. I mean, the, re- the reason I got into it initially, I think, was... Um, I mean, it was just interesting. It was an interesting new thing. I think it was on there in 2008 or nine, fairly fairly early on. And there was a very vibrant community of, of China watchers at the time. I mean, most it was, this was at a time where, you know, people were like, what is this Twitter thing? Do I like tweet about lunch or like my travels? And I think very quickly, the community of China watchers latched onto it as a way to share information, uh, which was unique at the time. Uh, so it was, and then it, was, it got shut down. Right, then it got shut down, thanks to the U.S. embassy. Uh, actually, thanks to the Chinese government. But wasn't that 2009? Uh, yeah, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was thanks to those yeah. Uyghurs. Yeah, actually, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Fine. I remember that. Uyghurs. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but yeah, no, I think it's I think it's useful. It's a great source of information. Um, I think it is it definitely it can be it can yeah. be a bit of an echo chamber. Uh, so so I try not to do it. Try not to get sucked into that vortex too much. I mean, echo chamber, but also this sort of, um, I think it gets criticized. A lot of the journalists get criticized for just paying each other these mutual compliments. And there's, it just becomes this, well, what do we call it? Really? Kind of a circle. Um, well, mm. a, a virtual <laughs> circle. very much depends on, on how you use it. I mean, one of the ways to use Twitter is to follow people you hate. Right. Yeah. I mean, I follow Ann Coulter. I mean, yes, yes. I mean, I follow Ann Coulter. I mean, that's the way you got to use Twitter. It's breaking news. You don't go there for uh, a deep analysis of uh, 
somebody's opinion. And the other good thing about it is, you know, you you don't have to friend someone to follow them. So you can see what uh, people who are completely different from you think. Uh, well, I think the equivalent, uh, you know, for China is, is uh, you know, to, to go on Weibo and to follow all the all the different voices out there, including, you know, the... Maoists, the leftists, like follow them all, so that they populate your feed in a. You see what the other side sees whenever we write some report, and uh, you know, and and the foreign media is immediately uh, cast in this particular frame. It's it's helpful to me, I think, to kind of use it that way to approximate public opinion where there is no real reflection of that, no no polling, for example. Josh, have you ever used Weibo as a tool in your reporting? <laughs> <laughs> why, why why would you ask that? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Although, although lately, not, not nearly as much. Right, no, I, I know. I've, I've noticed uh, that you've dropped off quite a bit. I mean, you, the joke, of course, for people who didn't, you know, who haven't heard all those old shows that we did with Josh was that we would always bring him on to give the sort of, you know... What's the, happening the, on Yeah, Weibo. what's happening on Weibo. Hey, Jeremy. Hey, Kaiser. I got my package from our new sponsor, and I assume you did too? Indeed. Which means you no longer have an excuse for that unruly riot that's sprouting from the whole lower half of your goddamn face, because you are now the proud owner of a Harry's Razor. I mean, this whole thing got started because you lost your old overpriced razor in the first place, right? Well, that is true. I, you know, when we moved, I lost my razor, so I decided just to grow a beard. <laughs> but, I mean, you haven't seen me since I've got this uh, Harry's razor. I, I haven't shaved the beard off, but I've used it to tidy up uh, the unruly riot. Pictures, Jeremy. I need photographic evidence of this of this tidying up. Uh, is Faye happy now, or does she still wish you just shaved the whole damn thing off? I have no comment. I'll... <laughs> 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 I I am loving my Harry's razor. I have gone back to that little goatee thing that I had when you saw me. I mean, I'd shaved it off for a little while. Anyway, the trimmer blade at the end of the razor is absolutely indispensable. I, I just don't know how I've lived with that one. Uh, thing is great. It's great. It's uh, it's a nice heavy uh, tool that feels uh, you know good in your hand, really well exactly. made. Exactly. Um, and cheaper than uh, paying a horrible multinational corporation lots of money for bits of cheap plastic and steel. Exactly, that's unconscionable. You know, even though I'm currently uh, sporting a beard, I urge you to get a great shave at a fair price, like the over apparently three million guys who have already switched over to Harry's. Yes, indeed, and claim your free trial offer from Harry's today, a $13 value for free when you sign up. You only need to cover the shipping costs. That includes a fine-looking weighted razor with five precision-engineered blades and a lubricating strip, as well as the trimmer blade that Kaiser mentioned, and some rich uh, lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. Yes, a travel blade cover. Get your free trial. Just go to harrys.com. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com slash subchina right now. That's harrys.com slash subchina. Definitely check them out. So a few years ago, um, Bloomberg was embroiled in this controversy over basically toning down coverage in hopes of maintaining access or, or maybe more cynically of, 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 you know, selling more of their terminals. Uh, they were worried that, that their, that business might suffer, uh, because of the coverage. Um, this was really clearly the exception rather than the rule. My distinct sense is that the, uh, major English language media outlets, and we're not counting the Global Times and the China Daily, uh, they never really, you know, consider compromise. Uh, but am I am I wrong here? Uh, is there effort or successful effort, more to the point, 
to manage coverage by media outlets from the West? Obviously, there are tacit efforts that are pretty constant and unremitting, but are there ever, do they ever use more strong arm stuff with you folks? Um, well, I can sort of, I can speak just in my capacity as a member of the board of a foreign correspondence yeah. club of China. I mean, that there definitely is a fairly steady drumbeat of, of examples of foreign media encountering, I mean, obviously resistance and being detained on the, on the, on the scene, uh, uh, but also of the foreign ministry sort of explicitly, um, suggesting or, or explicitly saying that, you know, this line of reporting is not going to help you get a visa renewal. Right. Right. So, so that is, and I think that we've seen more and more of that. Oh, really? It's been increasing. Um, I, so, I mean, not, not, I mean, not, not in terms of outright threat, threats, but a lot of like, we've seen more mentioning of, of human rights coverage, um, and then, and, and suggestions that, that and connecting that to visa renewal yeah wow. yeah so i mean we haven't had a, we obviously haven't had a reporter kicked out too recently there was there was uh one european reporter who who was kicked out for for a piece she wrote about xinjiang a couple yeah, of years Ursula. ago um since then we haven't had that but the but the pressures you know we hear reports of that sort of pressure going on right 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 um, I mean, Jill, is that something you can speak to uh, under the terms of <laughs> the ascent? <laughs> well, without commenting directly on uh, that news organization, I, I think generally speaking that the Chinese government is more uh, aggressive about maintaining what they consider are uh, red lines uh, of reporting and communicating that loudly and clearly. But, uh, you know, whether it's in the form of sending plainclothes people to physically obstruct your team of reporters from interviewing laid-off coal workers or, you know, um, or, or trying to get into a restricted, well, a, 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 uh, an area that's actually not restricted to reporting, or just, you know, having conversations with you about what, what has been put out. Uh, I think there are all these different ways in which they they uh, try to constrict the space in which we can operate. Do you have a good sense for whether that's coming from the center or whether that's just local, uh, you know, local authorities making decisions on the fly? It would just be my opinion, and I don't really, I, I really, right. there's no way to tell okay. as far as I can see. It's clear though that there is also the other thing I wanted to add was there is a nuance to this. Uh, while there. There are clearly more areas considered sensitive uh, for foreign media to be reporting on these days, including, you know, the economy sometimes. But on the other hand, now more than ever before, I think the Chinese government has made a, you know, a very strenuous effort to try to engage the foreign media just on its own terms. So, you know, you see a proliferation of news briefings, briefings, uh, you know, in which sometimes uh, responses can be somewhat scripted and you know <laughs> they they hold off the record briefings as well where they want to hear your thoughts about that other briefing they held and you know how all of this whole thing is being managed and and that is you know it's uh it's it's uh, on the one hand it has the you know it, it gives you the impression that they want to be engaged and they are open and on the other hand you know it doesn't it doesn't mean that all the other stuff is not going on at the same time so so it's much more nuanced now yeah, yeah. but yeah. I think I, I, mean, I think one point on that on the nuance is that's that I think is actually really interesting is my perception of it anyway is that it it's sort of timed very closely to the election of Donald Trump. And and this emergence of this narrative in China of China sort of taking a, a bigger global leadership role, 
So I think that there's, I think there is, there does seem to be a concerted effort in the central government at the state council uh, to to sort of push this message and to be a bit friendlier. And maybe it may be a sense that, you know, foreign media is suddenly no less antagonistic to the Chinese government as, as it is to, to the U.S. government. They need a friend. Which brings me to a very important question. Which is the lower circle of hell? White House press briefings or the press conferences arranged by the Chinese foreign ministry and other government organizations? Um, well, I mean... That's- Put it this way, I think, I mean, having not been in a Sean Spicer briefing, I can't say from, from personal experience, but I will say that the Chinese briefings at least allow you to turn the cameras on. <laughs> and, uh, and in the last one I went to, they, they, uh, they served everyone Starbucks coffee and gave us snacks. So wow. that was nice. Um, I mean, I think in that terms of nerve, a foreign ministry briefing. That was not a foreign ministry yeah. briefing. That was state council. Uh, different budget. Yeah, but yeah, they definitely have different more budgets. money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But in terms of information level, I don't know. I, I, would, I think that's a toss up. Yeah, yeah. So both of you guys are really well regarded, I think, um, in, in, in our peer group for a bunch of reasons. And for me, those would include, I think, you know, absence of any obvious bias and a commitment to really good journalist practices, like always giving the other side a right to respond. Uh, you guys make a real palpable effort to inject empathy into your reporting. I'm, I'm, I'm very convinced of that. Uh, what separates the run of the mill China journalists? Um, and obviously we won't name names from the outstanding ones. And there, maybe we can name names. I mean, what, what makes a great journalist great? Is it just the style of the prose? Is it the access? Is it the, the sources? Is it all of the above? I mean, what, what's, what do you just sort of makes the, I don't know who, who it is that you really admire, but I mean, for me, I know, I know some. Right, right. Well, I might turn this one over to the, to okay. the bureau chief. All right. Well, you're the one who's a, a talent evaluator professionally. Now, right, so. right, right. Um, I would say I think uh, the, you know what makes a a China story really stand out is um, it's just one that has that is able to capture all the nuance and the complexity. Uh, you know of uh, that isn't. You know, just pushing one very popular narrative, I guess, as, that tries to kind of um, dig a little deeper. Um, and I admit, I you know, I acknowledge it's really difficult here. You know, there are a lot of topics that that could really benefit from hearing more from the other side. You know, the the the, the official side in particular that you know you sometimes just cannot get. And I was thinking of uh, Nathan Vanderclip's uh, great piece on Shuanggui uh, earlier this mm-hmm, year. Mm-hmm. Shuanggui is the practice of, of well, it's, um, what's the nice translation, the double appointment now or something? Uh, or uh, double, double. It usually means uh, detaining and locking up right. a government official in right, some right. house somewhere and interrogating him, possibly torturing him, and it is usually a him, until he confesses to a crime uh, real or uh, imagined. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah, and um, I, yeah. Nathan's I, piece was very good. Yeah. yeah, I thought that was excellently reported. Um, uh, Although, well, great will, narrative, and um, I will bump, jump but, in here to say that Jillian also had a great Shuanggui piece a couple of years ago, so she knows whereof she speaks. <laughs> but I looked at that, and I was like, "That's really good. That's a really great story." And um, you know, and I keep thinking. When I was doing a, a story on that same topic, you know, a couple of years ago, and I managed to get these uh, officials to talk about how they were tortured in Shuanggui, 
what I felt was that was really uncomfortable for me was even though these officials were coming out and speaking on the record, which is a, hum a humongous risk to them, uh, my attempts to get the other side to talk about what they were seeing, you know, why this happened, you know, the, the officials at the time who placed him in detention, you know, to try to understand what what their case was it was often you know met with just a stone wall and, yeah, yeah. and i always felt very uncomfortable with that jillian and josh do either of you have any particular bugbears when it comes to the way your colleagues in the foreign press write about china are there any narratives that you're eager to see refuted and retired hmm. uh, um i think i don't know if it's a a bugbear so much, uh, a but, a, but, but a sort of, uh, well, I feel like it, there's an underlying assumption uh, in in a lot of reporting about China, which is, and it's an assumption that I've also, you know, that I think most foreign correspondents have had for many years is that, is that China eventually uh, will or should move towards democracy. Um, and this is, I mean, this is an idea that has sort of animated, you know, Western thought about China since, I mean, basically since Nixon. Um, so, and I, and, I, and I think, you know, without saying whether that's, you know, anything about democracy, I think this, this assumption that that's where China's going and that that is the uh, measuring stick uh, for the Chinese government probably needs to be question. I mean, I just well, are don't... you more um, objecting to the will or should to, to, to the prescriptive or the descriptive? I don't know. I mean, I think just as a journalist, I mean, in, in both senses, in, in, to the extent that it blinds you from seeing certain things, I think in both that it, I mean, if, if you, if you insist now that China is moving in the, in the direction of democracy, you have a pretty tough road to hoe. And I think on that on that question, I think a lot of people who formerly really did believe China was inevitably moving towards democracy have started to change their mind. Um, the should question is up in the air. I mean, I don't. That's that's right. that's something that I'm, I'm not going to weigh in on. But but I think uh, you know to the extent that it f informs the stories you tell about China, I think it can be blinding. Um, I think if you kind of... Don't you think it's a little bit bigger than, than democracy? I mean, uh, you know, Jonathan uh, Spencer's amazing book, uh, To Change China. Spence takes us back uh, as far back as the Ming Dynasty, Jesuits, Jesuit missionaries in China. Right. The idea that the Chinese should be more like us, uh, isn't that really what you're talking about? It's not necessarily just democracy, Sometimes it's alternative rock music where you have people from New York who open clubs in Beijing <laughs> kind of trying to reproduce the scene from the late 1970s in New York. Sometimes it's democracy. Sometimes right. it's, uh, uh, you know, internet censorship. Sometimes uh, it's about the way uh, health research is done. It's basically a, a kind of a patronizing attitude we're talking about, isn't it? Right, right. I think that's. I think that's it. You know. I mean, I think it's. It's this. It's also this notion. You know. I mean, in some ways, it's. It's. It's simpler if you look at China through that lens because it gives you a very clear uh, way to measure what's happening in China. Um, but you know, I mean, I was just talking to a to a, a veteran from from the nineteen eighty nine protests. Um, who I was talking to because of because of the news about Liu Xiaobo, and and you know he was saying you know Westerners got China wrong and we got China wrong, 
Uh, and you know, it's, it's not an easy thing to understand because it's not really Western and it's not Chinese. The Chinese speaking of a Chinese government, you know, it's, it's this weird amalgam that has never been seen before. Uh, and so it just, and no one really, his argument was that no one really appreciated that fact. Uh, and everyone was sort of using pre-existing lenses to sort of, to, to interpret the country. So anyway, we could go on all night talking about this. I mean, there's so many more things that I'd love to talk to you about, including many of the pieces that you guys have done, but, uh, we, we've got to push on. Uh, we've got other people lined up to do the podcast. <laughs> Jillian, Josh, Popular thanks man. a ton for, uh, for taking the time to talk to us. I, I look forward to hanging out with both of you guys again and debating whether we can in fact construct universal ethical systems from fundamental biological principles, which is <laughs> what our dear readers, uh, was exactly what Jill and Josh and we were talking about last weekend in this hip little Dong Chung cafe, uh, weirdly appropriate. Anyway, stick around, make a recommendation for our listeners, won't you? Yep. Okay, so uh, before we get to recommendations, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at subchina.com. You can follow SubChina on Twitter at at SubChina News and on Facebook at facebook.com slash SubChina News. If you like the Seneca Podcast, by all means, leave us a positive review on the Apple iTunes store or on Google Play or whatever podcast catcher you guys use. Uh, this really helps. It means a lot to us. And on to recommendations. Jeremy, what do you have for us this week? I am going to recommend the city of Memphis, where I am right now, which is not only really the musical hometown of B.B. King and Elvis Presley and many other great musicians, but it's also quite a, a fun city, completely different vibe to, to Nashville, much more gritty, I guess. Yeah, great. That's an excellent recommendation. I have not actually been to visit you in Nashville, let alone gone to Memphis, but at some point I will. Jill, what do you have for us? My recommendation is... The Beautiful Country and the Middle Kingdom, John Pomfret's book, but the audiobook version ah. read by Tom Perkins, uh, which if you're in Beijing wandering around the hutongs, um, uh, is a really a really wonderful um, accompaniment to have. Does does he get the Chinese right? So this is my big beef with audiobooks. <laughs> I cannot remember. Okay, because I, I, that's a tough question. Yeah, because um, this is the thing. It's like the once in a while you'll come across an yeah. audiobook narrator who's obviously spent a little time learning pinyin. Yeah. Other times they actually even try to get tones in, which is really kind of. Uh, but yeah. then you have like Ian Johnson reading his own book, which I actually listen. To. It's great. It's yeah. really great because you know obviously he. Know, he gets the I would love right. to check that out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, check that out. It is. It's, it's excellent. Josh, um, what do you have? So for me, I have a, uh, a kind of somewhat wonky and nerdy recommendation, which is a Wall Street Journal uh, reporter I feel I'm entitled to put forth. And that is a new uh, project by the Paulson Institute uh, looking at sort of describing the Chinese economy uh, and other aspects of China called uh, macro polo. I see what um, they did there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm recommending it. <laughs> but it's also brilliant. What a great name, Jeremy. I love that name, man. I'm, I recommended it. <laughs> I, I, I secretly recommended it just to elicit that response from Jeremy. But. I bet Damien Ma came up with that. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it's a good guess that Damien came up with that. But uh, but you know, it's a great. I mean, it is a great uh, look. It has is like a lot of fantastic data all gathered in one place and presented nicely, which is which is a, a rare thing. For, Let me for make China, one so. plug within that site. There's just an outstanding piece on sort of Silicon Valley and and China uh, by Matt Sheehan. Uh, just great. Just, I mean, I, I haven't. I've seen this topic written about a million times, and probably not this this well in a place. It's it's, it's really China, 
And while He's we're doing man, this kind man. of a circle jerky uh, recommendation, <laughs> um, Josh's pieces sure on uh, facial recognition in, in China and also the social credit system uh, in the Wall Street Journal are worth reading or, or revisiting if you've read them already. Right, the social credit piece that was co-written by the two of you, right? Yeah. When yeah. you were already dating, right? Or something. It was our, our oh, first okay. and last uh, co-byline front page story for the, uh, for the Wall Street right. Journal. Uh, did you guys have like it blown up in back of you at your wedding? Or <laughs> <laughs> No, no. I think we do no, have a copy of it somewhere. after the wedding. Yeah. yeah, he was actually working. Uh, we were still working on it during the wedding. I remember this. Oh, yeah, funny. You... There, there were edits. Yeah, yeah. that oh was so great. <laughs> what a romantic honey. Yeah. <laughs> okay, my recommendation. The Polish Officer by Alan First. Um, so our good friend Jan Barris uh, actually pulled some Alan First novels off her shelf and recommended I read them. She said this was the best one, and so naturally I started with that one, even though it's kind of out of order. Um, she was surprised. I wasn't already familiar with them. I confess I wasn't already familiar with him. I mean, he's he's this uh, uh, an American guy, but he writes in this distinctly old world style. It's a, I guess it's a cliche um, about him from people who read him a lot, but he has this fantastic ability to just sort of evoke place. Uh, and the place in this case is all Europe, mostly Eastern Europe, uh, either before or during Second World War. Uh, it's the series of 14 novels called The Night Soldiers, uh, which is all about uh, spies during the war. You know, Bulgarian spies and, you know, the Polish spies and French spies and Spanish spies. And it's just, it's, it's just the guy's writing is, just, I can't believe I've, but I feel like one of those people who's just had a dream where, where I'm, I'm in a dream where I've discovered this whole new part of my house that I didn't know was there. You know, you know, remember those? Yeah. So as I have like 14 or 13 more novels to look forward to by this, this fantastically gifted writer. So. Uh, yeah, Alan first, F-U-R-S-T. You, you have to, to read it. I mean, part, the, he switches style. Stylistically, he changes when he's doing different countries too. There's something Russian when he's writing Russia. There's something, I mean, it's. So it's, old world, old world style just refers to it being steeped in that, the voice of that era? Right, but also the prose itself. There's something uh -huh. about the quality of the prose itself, just the, the, the cadences and, and, and his diction. It's just, it's, it's lovely. I'm, uh, I'm crazy about it. Um, well, anyway, I, we, time to go. Uh, Jill, Josh, oh, yeah, thanks so no. much for coming in. And um, uh, we're going to hang out again soon, I, I, I reckon. Yeah? Let's yes, thank you so much so. for having us. Yeah. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Thanks also to Adam Cheng and Soraya Darabi from SubChina. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast. And follow us on Twitter here at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.